is the Echo Chamber PR podcast, brought to you by The Homes Report and TVC Group. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber PR podcast. This is episode 14. And as always, I'd like to thank TVC Group for helping us produce today's show. We're very happy to welcome back Robert Phillips, who is back in the hot seat after something of of an absence from the Echo Chamber. Good to be back. And uh, Arun is is naked in the uh, podcast chamber. He's not wearing his headphones. I, I am not. Well, you know, I thought I'd make an effort for you, for, for our reunion, let's mm-hmm. say. We have a few things to get through today, some uh, some interesting issues to, uh, to start off 2014. Later on, we're going to be talking to Pascal Buchler, who is Chief Strategy Officer of MSL Group. And we're going to be talking about the problems that international PR agencies face in France, brought to life by Wagner Edstrom's surprising decision to shut down its Paris operation. But before that, Robert, I thought we should have a little chat about some of these big global sporting events. Obviously, we're all watching um, the Sochi Winter Olympics. I was watching the, the curling this morning. Um, stirring stuff. But from a reputational standpoint, of course, what's interesting, I think, to us is the way that so many of these big global sporting events are actually a source of reputation risk for the countries involved. In Sochi, we've seen issues with gay rights, with dogs being killed, and with journalists complaining about the lack of doorknobs on their hotel room doors. Brazil's upcoming World Cup has proved to be a focal point for protests about uh, investment in the country and poverty, and is really turning into uh, something of a bittersweet experience, given that you know, it really is the, a country that you could say is, the, is the, the heartland of football. And of course, Qatar, where I think if I'm not mistaken, statistics have showed that hundreds of, of Nepali workers have died so far in the construction efforts for the World Cup. So my question to you, Robert, at what point do you think sponsors of these big events, who are, of course, responsible for bankrolling them, for ensuring they take place, for spending billions of dollars in an effort to align their brands with these events and ideally drive sales, at what point do they start to worry about the reputation risk for their companies? I suppose the quick answer to that is often too late because they're clearly deep-rooted issues specifically around Sochi and gay rights, as you say, and Qatar, uh, which is obviously using the World Cup to legitimise itself in, in the eyes of the world. However, the caveat against that is that we must beware taking too Western a view of this. And certainly if you are sitting in the Moscow office uh, of a global public relations firm, or even possibly in the Doha office of a global public relations firm, you would have a different view. So I think there is a word of warning that we don't impose a sort of Western morality on a lot of these global events. That said, there is probably a disconnect in a lot of global corporations between the marketing side that sees the opportunity for mass awareness, big sales promotional activation, and a lot of sort of, as they see it, goodwill versus the corporate relations side that should indeed see corporate risk. And then that leads us on to the deeper question about whether brands should get involved in politics. Mm. Do you think, given that, um, first of all, the sponsorship benefits alone are arguable, given how some of the ambush marketers do so well out of these events, given that and adding in the reputation risks, and we're seeing sponsors also being targeted now when people look at at these events and some of the risks they entail. 
Given all of that, do you actually think it's worth spending all of this money on these big global sporting events? If it was a personal choice, I, I wouldn't spend it. If I was advising a CEO, even a major global corporate, I would steer away from any of these set-piece activities, not just because of the political risk or the reputational risk, but simply because I think that it's become wallpaper. And in many many cases, I think the large sponsors are there because they think they need to be, and more often than not to stop their competitors doing it. I've mm-hmm. been in a, in a couple of sort of board meetings in the past where people have taken sponsorship decisions, not out of a proactive willingness or desire to sponsor an event or a series of events, but really just to stop the other side getting in there. Mm. And, and from that point of view, they make it a numbers play. But the question you ask, I think, has a, a really interesting dimension to this, which is, what is the role of the customer in this? What is the role of the employee in this? A number of the large global corporations play on the sort of passive acceptance of their employees, the passive acceptance of their customers, and say that they're not going to argue back. They're not going to take issue with the fact that they may be upset about gay rights, they may be upset about human rights, or they may be upset about employment rights. Or even in the case of Brazil, by the way, building safety and security, which has become an issue in the, in the run-up to, uh, to, to the World Cup. So I think that there is an interesting point in here, which is that if global brands really want to be customer-centric, if global brands really want to engage their employees, are they really talking to their employees? Are they really talking to their customers about the way that their customers, their employees want to engage with these events? Mm-hmm. And, and my suspicion is that they're not. Again, the decisions we made in the marketing departments or in the boardrooms of major multinationals without very little regard to what people feel on the ground. But surely the CEO is the is the final decision maker on something this big and isn't it his or her job to understand what his customers want or her customers want and what the company's employees want? Absolutely, although of course he or she, and as we know, unfortunately it's usually a he, which may be why you've got so many sporting events sponsored by major multinationals, Mm. but will have been persuaded by loads of evidence, many PowerPoint decks, lots of statistics, and as we know, statistics can be shaped to to make a case in in any number of areas. So I think there's a lack of, if you like, intuition that is being allowed Mm. to come to the fore, and a lack of sort of thoughtfulness around why are we doing them, what is the right thing to do. And we saw this, you know, for many years in the anti-apartheid campaign in South Africa, Mm -hmm. there's always going to be some who make the case for saying, well, politics is just not what we're about. We're about selling products. But in today's world, there is a societal responsibility as well as a profit responsibility for corporations. Given that the associations behind these events, whether it's the IOC or FIFA, are not what I would call particularly in touch with public opinion, or at least minded to change their behavior because of public opinion. Do you think that uh, going after sponsors is, is, is the best way to improve the governance and the standards of events such as these? Well, I, I don't wish to expose the Holmes Report's potential litigation by sharing thoughts on the IOC or, or any of the other, or FIFA or any other world governing bodies, but clearly they, they don't open themselves up to scrutiny in the way that a public corporation would open itself up to scrutiny. And I think that's clearly an issue. And uh, all of us as sports fans sort of tend to accept them as they are because we rather like the fact that they put on the World Cup or the European Championships or the Champions League or, 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 or the Olympics. But certainly there is a case for better governance among the world sporting bodies and certainly the sponsors themselves not just the the customers or the employees of the sponsoring companies but the sponsors themselves should make great demands on those bodies in terms of their own governance and their own transparency uh, which I think is probably lacking so there's a sort of chain of events here that, that, that could be set in motion both from the bottom up and from the middle up i.e. from the sponsors up to, to the organising elites Do you think sponsors are alive to the risk at least after 
Sochi and given what's happening in Brazil and Qatar? I think they, they are alive to risk. I mean, very few corporates at that level go into uh, sponsorship of this scale blind. And I guess the decisions are made whereby the benefit out, outweighs the risk, which is how they make commercial decisions. That said, around Qatar in particular, I'm not sure that people fully appreciate some of the issues that exist within that particular state. And that's partly because that, that part of the world is not particularly well explained in the eyes of, of Western or global brands. And my, my sort of thought is that going into Qatar, which of course is still a number of years away, uh, is, is that the Qatari situation will become more acute than, than Russia and Sochi is around gay rights as the, as the next few years unfolds. One final thought um, on, on Sochi. Barack Obama famously appointed some gay uh, athletes to be his ambassadors to the, the games in Sochi. And it would be quite good and send great positive messages if some of the brands followed suit. So accepting that they're there in Sochi, accepting that they're uh, major sponsors of, of the games. Brands need to have their own profile, their own positive assertion uh, of gay rights, if gay rights is such an issue, which it probably is. And their own point of view, this is an interesting issue. We saw a couple of companies take a stance on gay rights last year. I'm actually reminded of an American company, which I think is called Chick-fil-A. That's right. And the Italian company Barilla, yeah. both of which took perhaps what you could describe as an opposing stance to uh, uh, in the gay rights debate. If you're saying companies should make a positive assertion, does that also give them the right to make a negative assertion? Well, it goes well, back, <laughs> of course, you know, philosophically and logically, yes, it does. And again, I don't want to color the judgment of, of decision-making through a, a sort of way Western liberal lens necessarily. But I think companies can be more active in this space. And certainly Starbucks is a good example where they've taken sort of quite clear social stands on anything from healthcare to gun laws and, and, um, and possibly tax. I was referring to the US rather than the UK. But there is, um, you know, I think in an activist society, business leaders need to be activists themselves. And, and therefore, the companies themselves need to be activist organizations. And therefore, the line that used to be there between politics and, and brands, I think, is pretty invisible. But presumably, if, if you're going to be an activist organisation, then it shouldn't just be the CEO's point of view. It should reflect the people that work there. Absolutely, which goes back to my very first mm -hmm. point, which is making sure that this reflects the general views and opinions of the employees within the organisation and of its customer base. Mm. And you can, you can make the case now that brands should be more active politically. I'm not saying necessarily just spending tons of money on super PACs, but... Having a point of view, being involved in, in the debate, I mean, it's it, it, they can't necessarily just avoid it all the time now. No, I don't think they can avoid it, and I think it's naive to think so. Um, and a uh, quick plug for my forthcoming book, but the, the whole notion of public leadership is built on being activist, co-produced, citizen-centric, and society-first. Whether you call that political with a big P or a small P is definitely an involvement in the wider societal issues at play, and brands, companies, corporations can't ignore those. We are joined now by Pascal Boucler, who is Chief Strategy Officer from MSL Group. Pascal, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Thank you. Glad to be with you. You are here to help us deconstruct some of the issues that face international public relations firms in Paris. And the reason we're discussing this is because of the decision we reported last week by Wagner Edstrom to shut its French operation. I mean, from my point of view, I was not massively surprised. I think, as I wrote last week, one of the things that often comes up when I talk to 
international PR agency heads is how difficult they find France and in particular the Parisian, the tight-knit, somewhat elite Parisian market. So maybe they're better off just leaving the country altogether when the economy is not growing much, the PR market is not growing much, and international PR firms struggle to uh, build their credibility with the domestic business elite. What do you say to all that, Pascal? Well, I think that for sure there is and there is some truth here, as we could uh, discuss it last week. Um, if you look at um, what happened in the past, let's say, 10 years or so uh, on the French market, and when you say the French market, you know, this country is so hyper-centralized that it's Paris, basically because, you know, it's like uh, uh, the Sun King in Versailles. Uh, everything was starting from the king's bedroom and had to come back to the king's bedroom. Mm. The rest was not very important. So Paris is, is definitely uh, the place where you have to succeed in establishing a PR operation or not. So if you look at what happened over the past 10 years, um, I, I would agree that it's not been an easy journey for many, um, especially U.S. colleagues, but not only, probably also a couple of UK agencies. And I would say not only in the field of PR, by the way, but also, for instance, in the field of branding. Mm. I remember uh, Wally Olins, uh, and I was very honored asking me uh, 20 years ago <laughs> whether I would be uh, considering open a design uh, bureau for, for his company in Paris, and I was measuring the difficulty. Uh, so that's probably uh, the Gallic factor, as you would say, I think, in London. Um, it, is, um, it is a little special here for the reasons I was mentioning, uh, mostly because the business elite in in the city is really, you know, uh, sort of uh, concentrated on being people coming from the same sort of um, schools and and same sort of social ecosystem or biotope, if you want. And so there is a very high level of cooperation. Either you are part of the circle, either you are not. And obviously, if you are coming from the U.S., or coming from London, you're not going to be spontaneously seen as someone from this ecosystem. So it's it's not easy. This being said, I would argue that um, it's probably like in every couple which is uh, doing not too well, uh, mixed responsibilities. <laughs> because I saw so many of um, US companies coming to Paris, like uh, literally jumping uh, over the city and coming with uh, a plan to develop business for U.S. companies, not really taking into consideration the specificities of the market. And probably uh, there is a need to consider the local culture, uh, which is a little specific, um, and find the right people um, if you want to make it happen. Last thing, as a global perspective, I, I would say that it's probably going to change, and it's already changing uh, due to the globalization. Uh, you know, even France one day might come to the idea that the world is global and and is not uh, finishing when you cross the ring road over Paris, around Paris. Um, and so probably because more and more Chinese, Indian, 
Brazilian, Indonesian companies are going to start making business in, in Paris, the ecosystem itself is going to change and, and more opening uh, and more open-minded uh, will be welcome here. I hope so at last. Um, Robert, for someone who ran agencies all across Europe, was France worth the hassle for you? Uh, France was never a hassle for me. It was always a pleasure. Thank uh, you, Robert. I, I think that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I think the point that Pascal makes is right. I mean, we, we cannot see or one shouldn't see France as a parochial market. One has to see it as a global hub. And certainly if you drive around the peripherique, you will see any number of global brands headquartered in Paris. Mm-hmm. And whilst there may be a certain Gallic mindset, it doesn't mean that they're not global corporations or global brands. And I think global organizations need to map themselves against that. There are also specific opportunities in France, not least the gateway to North Africa, French-speaking North Africa, which I think is generally under-explored, under-exploited by the, the big global firms. And that said, the, the points that, that you made just before and in Arun's blog post as well on the subject, France does somehow seem to be more elitist than even the UK uh, when it comes to the communications profession. And it does seem to create some sort of barrier to entry for the market. There's certainly no lack of global companies in France. And in fact, I think they own so many companies here in the UK, for example. But my question, I guess, would be how many of those global companies are working with international PR agencies? And then if they're not working with international PR agencies, how do international PR agencies justify being in France and how do they grow their business? Well, I think there are two issues there. Certainly, when, when I was at Edelman, uh, Edelman was the largest of the major network players within the French market. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like a, a $7 million business, and everyone else was sort of trapped at a sort of 45 to $5 million level, and that hadn't really changed the best part of a decade. Mm-hmm. So there is a, there is a problem there. But I think that the, the strategic challenge is whether France is just another flag on the map for global public relations firms or for any communications networks, or whether it becomes a center of excellence. France as you know, I think is the world's third largest media market in terms of media ownership and and marketing services ownership. And somehow the global approach to the marketplace doesn't reflect that at all because it is actually quite sort of domestic. So I think that I think there is a there is a huge challenge here in terms of what function do global firms want French public relation professionals to play? Because presumably you have deep expertise in healthcare in France, you have deep expertise in automotive in France, you have deep expertise in finance finance in France, Mm -hmm. and yet somehow we seem to only look to France as being a sort of an outpost of a global firm that just has generalists servicing global companies. And I think that maybe the big multinational firms need to look at it from the other way around. Is that what can you hub out of France into those networks and what expertise can you draw together rather than just having a flag on the map? I couldn't agree more with, with you, uh, Robert, and I think it's, it's exactly that you said. If I may add um, another perspective to that, which we discussed with Arun last week, I think it's changing too, or it will change, uh, because of the transformation of our own industry, the PR industry. You know, three, four years ago, that is a long time ago, uh, you would still have argued that, okay, the PR is divided in two pillars, uh, the consumer marketing one and the corporate one and obviously there is not such a pressure on the business elite in in Paris when it comes to consumer marketing because most of the business elite doesn't touch consumer marketing you know it's too trivial 
um, and so everybody can play the game and, and can come with innovative ideas uh, for guerrilla marketing or experiential marketing or whatever. When it comes, when it came to corporate, uh, this is where the, the business elite and, and the origination of the people was key because if you want to speak to the minister of something or to uh, somebody influence um, around the political arena, you better speak to someone who has been in the same school, right? And it's going to be much easier in terms of networking. My strong belief and hope is that the change is coming because uh, the digital and social revolution is also bringing some sort of disintermediation here. I can tell you that including CEOs of huge companies here watching with a lot of interest the most recent developments uh, when it comes to uh, digital and social and the way it can help them reach their goals, not only in the consumer arena, but also in, in reputation management, for instance. And so, yeah, the fact that you are French or not French coming from Polytechnic or any other school or not is not going to make such a difference. Um, nobody ever asked to uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, where he was coming from, right? Mm. Uh, and, well, and it, was so, it was still Harvard, though. Yeah, but he was, I'm not sure he really was from there <laughs> in many ways. He was, I don't think he would have created Facebook if he had felt that much part of the Phoenix Club, you see what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not if so, you uh, go with the movie, yeah. Exactly. So um, that, that would be my, my other point. I think the transformation of our business, the end of uh, this intermediation, the fact that the more it goes, the more we need to have a strong digital and social heart at, mm -hmm. the, at, the, at the middle of the nuclear plant that the PR agency is, is going to give a chance to anyone, uh, whatever the origin and the age uh, in the next five years. So I think it's time to come back to Paris for my US colleagues. So you think um, France could actually benefit the, the industry there from more of a kind of insurgent outsider perspective, maybe taking on some of these elites. Are international firms equipped to play that role, Robert? No, I don't think they are. And I think the point that Pascal makes is absolutely right. In a social digital networked world, the flags on the map strategy is effectively redundant. And what you need to do is build centers of excellence and it shouldn't matter which markets those centers of excellence are in. Mm. But the, the large networks with thousands of employees globally are locked into their own strategy and can't seem to find a way to break out of it. And the interesting political backdrop to this is, of course, the secession movements that are, are happening in Europe particularly. We have it in, here in the UK with Scotland trying to find a way to independence and Barroso was on UK TV over the weekend mm -hmm. worrying about that not so much in the context of Scotland and England but in the context of Catalonia and Spain. Mm -hmm. So in a world that sees fewer nation states and more city states and where businesses are the sizes of those states I think that uh, public relations and other marketing services firms need to realign themselves with a new reality but their business models don't let them do it. Mm. Interestingly I wanted to bring up another point that you made when I spoke to you before Pascal, you said surely the, the, the situation for international PR firms in France is not so different from Germany. And I wanted to ask you about that, Robert, because surely it isn't. Yet, while uh, international PR firms have found it difficult to crack 
the top ranks of, say, the German agency leaderboard, their business seems to have held up a lot better in that market. Is that purely a macroeconomic reason for that? The statistical evidence was suggested it's a macroeconomic mm. case. Culturally, the, 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 you, the anecdotal you... evidence <laughs> would say that there is a cultural dissonance, and and it goes back to uh, the Sciences Po point that, that Pascal was making, and and there is very much more of, I think, less trust of the outside world. And there's a brilliant quote from Pascal in your in your blog post about it sounding like too many firms with names plucked from Raymond Chandler novels. And, and I think that. No, 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 I think there is a deep French ske- a cultural skepticism of mm. that in the way that actually there isn't in in Germany, mm. for example. Agreed. And, and But, you know, let's flip that around. There's, yes, okay, if we can accept there's probably deep cultural scepticism in France, but what about the cultural arrogance of American firms? The cultural arrogance of American firms? I almost think that might be a set-up uh, question. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pose it to Pascal in that case. Pascal. <laughs> that's, that's, that's mean. You're mean, Aaron. <laughs> no, uh, honestly, I, I, uh, first you know that I'm very uh, Americanophile, if you say that in English. I'm, I love the US and, and, and the American people. And I don't think there is an American arrogance. I, I think there is a French arrogance, that's for sure. Um, there is no American arrogance. There is just an American perception of the business and the words, uh, which is starting from the U.S. and which is probably still, in some ways, remaining in a paradigm uh, in which it was starting from New York and coming somewhere else in the world. And, and again, if you look at the way the top five of the uh, U.S. PR networks developed over the past two decades, or three decades, it's been by taking their clients abroad, right? And so creating offices to run U.S. business somewhere in the world. Uh, this is not arrogance for me. It, it's just because it is the first power in the world and, and the biggest brands and companies. So they, they probably had to do it this way. What is changing now is, you know, what I'm, I'm, I'm so keen about, which is uh, this new world in which we come, which is a world of insights and data and emotion and uh, Technologies and in these words, uh, like Robert was saying, it's not where you come from or where you are, which is important. It is whether you found the algo or the solution and um, the data extraction and the insights analysis, which are going to make you someone you want to have to help your business develop. And so I'm really ready to bet that if we speak again in five years from now, the conversation will be very different because no nation, no culture, no business elite is going to resist to that. The fact that the whole industry is in the middle of a turmoil created by uh, the reign of data and, and insights. So new and so different from the classical job of making media relations. Media relations, it will remain, but it's not going to be much of the revenue we make and surely not the profitability will. I, I think that that's a two two very important points there. I think that there will be a fundamentally different conversation in five years' time, and if the large agency networks don't begin to address their business models, then they will see more Frances happen, if you like, or more more, more issues happen as has happened with Waged in France. Mm. Uh, I think that the that the business models that most of the large networks employ are not fit for purpose in the data age, and are not fit for purpose in the network age, which 
which is bizarre given the advice that those firms should be giving to clients. Your earlier question, and going back to something that Pascal said, your earlier question about cultural arrogance, I think there is a degree of cultural naivety and certainly cultural insensitivity uh, among the global firms. And that's why when we were talking earlier in this podcast about Sochi and about Qatar, we have to be sensitive to, to sort of global considerations, not just national considerations. But you have to trace the origins of the public relations business and the way that it globalized through the large American firms that were founded in the 1950s and 1960s, mm. where there was, if not cultural arrogance, there was certainly cultural imperialism or economic imperialism that said, okay, well, we'll first go to other English-speaking markets. Therefore, they opened in London. And after London, Paris was obvious. And I just don't think that a lot of large global firms look long and hard at themselves since the 1950s, 1960s to ask themselves, is the flag on the map strategy appropriate or fit mm. for purpose? Yeah. Well, presumably, it's, it's quite hard to pluck those flags out and change that strategy once they're in place. It is, absolutely. But then, you know, uh, how many times do we hear global agency leaders saying that public relations needs to be more in the C-suite? So if you're sitting in the C-suite with the chief executive, that's the advice that you'll be giving to him or her, that people have to reconsider their business models in the context of some fundamental societal shifts. And I don't believe that the public relations industry has asked that question of itself. Mm. Okay, thank you, Robert. Pascal, any final words from you? France, uh, presumably, is still open for business for international people. PR firms. You know, I have in mind, and again, fully approve uh, what Robert just said. I have in mind, Arun, uh, one of the last time we met, it was for the ICCO meeting in Paris, mm. you remember? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, if you take the key points of discussion which happened, it was about transformation, it was about innovation, it was about diversity and a new approach to talent management, which is so crucial in our business. And all of these points taking place in Paris uh, in November give me some sort of hope that the new generation of PR leaders in this country, whatever the origin again, and that's no big deal, are going to take the business to the next level and really uh, transform PR in the old way, you know, the bureau de presse, uh, as, as some people would still say in Paris. So the bureau de presse is, you know, this agency where you have 200 contacts in the fashion uh, arena, and so you're going to have their uh, agreements on doing an event with champagne, and that's, that's gone, that's finished. Mm. <laughs> that's okay for the fashion week once a year, but the true business is elsewhere and it's again in the containers of the future not these of the past and so I hope that the ICCO session here was the beginning of a new era I really hope it I hope also that uh, what's going to happen through the um, Publicis Omnicom merger is going to bring also some sort of interesting cultural uh, synthesis uh, mm. by mixing uh, great US networks and, and, and great uh, French and British networks. Um, so I'm, I'm confident, optimistic, and this is one of the very few French qualities. Mm. The question for, for WAGED and putting out of France is not whether that was the right decision, but whether that is part of a wider strategic play to repurpose their organization for an age of data networks. I think it is partly that, but I think it's also, frankly, a, a calculation that um, they would be better off investing in, in other markets. Yeah, but that's, so, but that's the point. It shouldn't be about investment in other no. markets. It should be about investment in a different business model. So I think it still flags, it still flags on the map, but it's just different flags on the map, yeah. maybe. But... 
it's it's kind of unfair for me to speculate. Perhaps we should get someone on from Wagner Edstrom next time. Pascal, thank you so much for joining us on the Echo Chamber. We would be very happy to welcome you back on again, and not just indeed to talk about Paris and Champagne, but to talk about all all manner of uh, of things related to the public relations world. Thank you very much. Finally today, I thought we should maybe have a chat, Robert, about uh, some of the uh, so-called disasters we're seeing in the media, particular uh, real disasters, I guess you'd call them, such as things happening in Syria, to the extreme weather that we're seeing in the US and the UK. What do you make of how the media is, um, is covering some of these events and how that is, in fact, affecting the communication strategies that are being deployed? I think we're seeing a couple of uh, issues play out here, certainly uh, in the UK, where there's also been extensive flooding. Um, and uh, on the basis that, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult and it's damaging, but very few lives have been lost. It's certainly not the consequences of, say, the civil war in Syria or some of the floods that we've seen in the past in Bangladesh or building fires in Bangladesh. I think there's a, an issue of proportionality, and that issue of proportionality plays out two ways. Uh, first, it plays out as far as the rolling news agenda is, is concerned, and, and certainly with a rolling news media 24-7, we see a very different approach to big global issues and, and stuff that may be uh, of interest is suddenly magnified hugely and other items are pushed down the agenda. So we've seen almost 24-7 coverage just of floods in one or two towns in, in small suburbs of London. And whilst I'm sure that's dreadful for the people who live in those towns, I'm not sure it, it demands the domination of national news that it's been getting. The second issue that we see playing out is politicians struggling to come up with answers. Mm. And uh, we've seen the clear return of message management. And, Did it and, ever go away? Well, I think if it went away, it's come back with less subtlety. And we've seen some grotesque photo calls, possibly Princes William and Harry filling sandbags and passing him down in their in their local town next to Windsor Castle. They were was, just on the street. They were passing and thought they'd stop and help. David Cameron, you know, uh, in Windsor, but not mentioning that his former school, Eton's playing grounds, uh, uh, are underwater. Where he and, dreamed and being, up all uh, his policies. And being, <laughs> being, yes, and being, you know, very clearly managed in what he should say. And now you get the backlash of that with some people saying, well, were his rivers dredged more than other rivers elsewhere in the UK, the rivers in his constituency? So I think that the politicians cope with it badly. They cope with it badly partly because they may not be well briefed and people still think that people believe in in managed messages, Mm -hmm. Uh, but also because they themselves are victims of this rolling news agenda where they feel the the need to say something the whole time. Mm. It strikes me that they're still playing to this, the TV news world. Yeah. I'm not going to suggest that somehow TV news is, is not extremely powerful. It, I mean, it really is. In fact, it's with more screens, you could argue it's actually becoming more powerful. But has the, the advent of, um, of you know, more of this two-way communication, social media and so forth, surely that's changed that whole idea of you can just get a nice picture out and, and that will be your message for the day. Yes, I, I mean, there was, uh, uh, during the last Labour government, I, I was working with one of the um, departments and their civil servants were despairing because the minister would come in every morning and ask the question, well, what's in the Daily Mail today? And policy would literally be sort of reorganised based on a reaction to a national newspaper. I think that a lot of politicians say 
that they get to social media, say that they get the social world, but then do very little to actually engage with it as it should be engaged with and revert to top-down message management. And that's effectively what you're seeing in the current floods crisis in the UK. Mm. And how much of this is down to the calibre and the style of the politicians themselves? David Cameron, of course, we're often told, is a former PR man, although potentially from a different era. Many of the leading politicians, not just in the UK, but in many countries nowadays, or at least the leading government figures are, you could describe as technocrats. Do they perhaps lack that emotional ability to understand people and uh, tailor what they're saying, or at least to connect with them at an emotional level? rather than necessarily making the case based on facts. So the rise of technocracies is a really interesting point because technocracy is, is linked to management and management is not leadership. And I think that part of the problem is, is that people tend to think that managers are leaders and leaders are managers, and they're two very different skills. Mm-hmm. And if you sort of follow the academic argument, you know, management is important for hierarchy, important for a degree of sort of uh, controlled influence, if you like. But the leadership should happen within networks, and networks are where the big changes happen. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing effectively is a managerial approach to communications, a technocratic approach to communications, which if you follow the logic of that, argument would suggest that actually Cameron is not a leader, he's a manager. And many of our politicians are following the management example, not the leadership example. And I think leadership would be, or proper leaders, authentic leaders, would be more engaged, mm-hmm. would be more intuitive, would be more sympathetic or empathetic with the needs of everyday people. But it seems to me that what we're, what we're getting instead is a lot of sort of preaching from the top of the mountain down, and that's not really appropriate in a networked world. But these are the people that are mostly, at least, winning elections. I'm aware that some of them don't necessarily win elections, they're appointed. So surely on one level, whatever arguments and cases they're making are working insofar as they're being voted into power, and that must reflect some sort of public comfort, understanding, and possibly even demand for this type of technocracy. Well, a lot of the technocracy, Italy is obviously the most, uh, mm-hmm. the clearest example, Greece, Greece is another one, came about in, in, you know, as a visceral reaction to crisis. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure it's necessarily technocracy by choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see the rise of the technocratic governments, but you also see the rise of the managerial governments. And one of the problems in, in, in my home market, your home market, the UK, that you get is effectively a managerial class of politicians that's mm-hmm. come through the back room and then suddenly find themselves in, in the cabinet room, mm-hmm. which, which is problematic. And and I think that what the world is really lacking in politics is, is leadership. And even where you have visionary leaders, as Barack Obama was, was heralded to be, he then finds himself sort of hamstrung by the technocratic processes of those around him. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're seeing is a global deficit of leadership, which mm-hmm. leads to a global crisis of trust, which leads to poor engagement and more message management over authentic networks of, of influence. Okay, well, thank you very much, Robert. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a a pleasure to have you back, and I am hopeful we will have you back again in the not-too-distant future. I would, as always, like to thank TVC Group for helping us produce today's show. You can, of course, find us on homesreport.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can get in touch with us at our Twitter account, on Facebook. We welcome all of your feedback. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you very much.